Let's meet together this morning at John's Gospel, chapter 17. John's Gospel, chapter 17. We're picking up with the last one-third of our Lord's great prayer this morning. John 17. May I ask you please to stand as we uh, pick up our reading at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone, that is the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as I am one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. You may be seated. I am reading a collection of articles by Peggy Noonan, a Wall Street Journal columnist, Reagan speechwriter and biographer. There's a series in that book spanning about a decade written in the wake of 9-11. Miss Noonan lives in New York City. and She gives a very personal first-hand account of events on that fateful day. One gut-wrenching piece is titled, I Just Call to Say I Love You, about messages left on answering machines by passengers on the four jumbo jets and the, the World Trade Center in the last minutes of their lives. C.C. Lyles, a 33-year-old flight 93 attendant left this message for her husband. Please tell my children I love them very much. I'm sorry, baby. I wish I could see your face again. 31-year-old Melissa Harrington, a California-based trade consultant at the World Trade Center that day, left a message for her new husband as he slept at their home in San Francisco. Sean, it's me. I just wanted to let you know 
I love you. When Elizabeth Rivas's husband arrived for work at the Towers that morning, where he worked as a chef, she went to the laundromat where she heard the news. She couldn't reach him by cell phone and rushed home. He had called at 9.02 a.m. and reached their daughter. She reported to mom. He say, Mommy... He say, he love you no matter what happens. He love you. Captain Walter Hines of the New York City Fire Department, Ladder 13, dialed his home that morning on his way downtown. He left a message saying that things were very bad. And then he said this, I don't know if we'll make it out. I want to tell you that I love you and I love the kids. His widow later told the Associated Press that she had played his message hundreds of times and had made copies for the kids. He was thinking about us in those final moments, she said. It's ironic that not one person who left a message that morning talked about themselves Noonan points out that one essential message was conveyed by all, and I quote, In spite of my imminent death, my thoughts are on you and on love. On his way to Gethsemane with the eleven, where he will be arrested, Jesus prayed the greatest prayer ever prayed. In spite of his imminent death, his thoughts were on you and on love. There is a significant difference. Unlike the victims of 9-11, Jesus died willingly victor. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, he says. Through the centuries from that very night to today, multiplied millions have come to know Christ as Savior and Lord because of the witness of those first disciples. Have you ever thought about it? The Christian faith can be extinguished in one generation. All it would take would be for a single generation not to pass the good news on. It begins in the family. It is no longer God's word, verse 14, or my word. It is their word. Jesus prayed for three things for you and me. He prayed for our unity. He prayed for our destiny, and he prayed for our mutual love. 21, that they may be one in us. Did you notice the repetition of that term? Three times in three verses, he talks about oneness. He prays for our unity in faith, our unity in glory, and our unity in obedience. 
Now, it's important that we understand what unity is not. There's a lot of confusion about that in the church. First, it is not uniformity. Training in the military strips each recruit of his or her individuality in order to create a uniform cluster. My friends who have experienced the military, I wonder if Billy will go through this in the coming weeks, they tell me that when you arrive at the recruit barber shop, that they take the clippers and they run them right down the middle and then they say, now how was it you wanted that cut? Recruits wear the same uniform. Each person emerges from boot camp looking the same, sounding the same, behaving the same, prepared for the same kind of duty. Now, some churches are like that, aren't they? A place where everyone's expected to look alike, think alike, smell alike, use the same vocabulary, to be Christian clones. And when you visit churches who believe and who give great priority and understand unity as uniformity, you find out quickly what the list is, right? Am I speaking to the choir here at all? And uh, you know the list, that if you conform to that, you're a sheep. If you don't, you're a goat, okay? And if you're going to be on the inside, it ranges from the Bible translation you carry, the books you read, the music you listen to, the way you dress, and it goes far beyond biblical guidelines of modesty. Unity is not uniformity. But second, unity is not union. Now, 21 is often quoted by those involved in the ecumenical movement. Are you familiar with that term? The idea is that being one in Christ requires that you rub out all doctrinal distinctions, that you dismiss all denominational emphases. Now, there's no question that denominationalism can be an obstacle to unity. But understand that the privilege to form denominations is not a negative thing. It really is the fruit of the Reformation that gives us the privilege of linking up with and worshiping and fellowshipping with those with whom we agree. Now, we're not again anybody. That's not what it's about. But it's coming together on the basis of what we understand and what we believe. We at faith have never believed that we're the best thing God's got in this county. We've never believed that. But we thank God for the privilege of coming together on the basis of what we believe. This morning in our class, we talked about uh, our belief in baptism, even Baptist confessionals. Faith has become a church with a variety of denominational backgrounds. Not because we de-emphasize doctrine. Not because of anyone's plan or design. I think as I have watched this through the decades now, it's because we endeavor to major on the majors. We focus on essentials of faith, essentials of doctrine, and we allow for differences in background and culture and worship styles. This is one reason we have adopted years ago, 20 years ago, a blended worship and music plan. Why do we do that? 
we recognize differences here. We hold to the fundamentals of the faith, salvation through faith in Christ, and all of those doctrines. But we allow for diversity. And it's important that you know that, and it's important that a candidate know that. So what is the unity that Jesus prayed for? Here it is, key statement of the morning. It is an inward spiritual relationship based on shared life in Christ. Now, the important words in that statement, it is a spiritual relationship. What brings us together, friends, is not the fact that uh, we do the same kind of work. It's not that our kids are the same age. It's not that we happen to live in a certain area of the country or the state, or it's not that our families grew up together. It is a spiritual relationship. Call it a spiritual identity, if you please. This is what calls us together. We are more than just a group of attendees this morning. And everything we do, many things that we do, is simply an expression of the spiritual relationship that we share. When we share in a soup and sandwich fellowship, when we share in other things that are involved here, That these are symbols. Membership is a symbol of spiritual unity. There are many that send messages as to how we view our church, how we view our participation, and our place in this church. It's a spiritual unity that we share, and it transcends race and background and cultures. It's supernatural. You know why? Because... It mirrors God's nature. In the Trinity, there is unity in diversity. You don't find a uniformity in the Trinity. You find different functions. But you do find unity in diversity. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul presents four marks of unity that characterizes a biblical church, a New Testament church. Genuine unity results in being of the same mind. Spiritual unity, and I'm driving that term home to us, signifies that true believers are led by a deep growing knowledge of the Word of God that energizes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because we are walking in the Spirit, we maintain the same attitudes. Unity results in maintaining the same love. Now, that doesn't mean everybody shares the same emotional attachment. But this word love is that great New Testament word agape, which is a love not based upon emotion, but upon action and decision, right? It means loving the unlovely. It's making a decision to love someone you don't like. In Romans 12, Paul identifies it as devoted to one another. Maintain the same love, he says, this action love. Then unity results in being united in spirit. The original term meant one sold. It refers to a passionate common commitment to the same spiritual goals. By definition, it excludes divisive attitudes, personal agendas, selfishness, resistance, gossip, jealousy, 
a hundred other manifestations of the flesh. And then unity results in intent on one purpose. Because we are of the same mind, we're loving each other and are united in spirit, we have the same goals, which is the advancement of the kingdom. Robert Louis Stevenson, as a little boy, was was very, very sickly. He really grew up within the confines of his home. One evening, standing in the window, he watched a lamp lighter at dusk coming down the street, lighting the old gas lamps. And he said, look, Mommy, that man is punching holes in the darkness. Spiritual unity is that which motivates us to join hand in hand and heart to heart with others in koinonia, in true ministry, in fellowship. A spiritual identity. Coaches tell me that it's important that a team find their personal identity. It's also true spiritually in a church. And where spiritual identity is lacking, what you tend to have is a perpetual, continual, revolving door. We have been called together to punch holes in the darkness. Dark hearts, dark homes, dark schools, workplaces, communities, and governments. David wrote in Psalm 133 that unity is like oil. It removes friction in relationships because it's always tapping us on the shoulder, pointing to the big picture, those priorities we have in common. So why is unity a priority in the Lord's praying? Notice the phrase, that the world may believe that you sent me. One old Puritan said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. This is one reason why carnality in the church grieves the spirit. Because people are watching us, right? And more importantly, our children and our grandchildren are watching us. A lot of pastors' kids become spiritual casualties because they are exposed to attitudes toward dad and sometimes toward the family in the church that they didn't expect to find in the church but expected to find it out there in a lost world. There's a community in Boone County called Blooming Rose. Anybody ever been there? I have. Blooming Rose. How many? Ooh, yes. Timo's been... Well, look at this. We have people here who have really been to some important places. You know West Virginia. Sure you do. Mountain, little flat spot. By the way, the Scotch-Irish called those glens. We have any glens around here? A little, uh, a little place, just enough to put a house and a doghouse, you know. And uh, then you have the creek, you have the, you have the railroad, and then you have another mountain. That's Blooming Roads. There was a church down in Boone County at Blooming Roads that uh, the church split and the two factions were too poor for either of them to go and to, to rent a new building the West Virginia way. So they agreed that uh, one faction would use the building on Sunday morning the other would use it on Sunday evening. And it went quite well until winter descended on the community. The building was heated by a, a coal stove. So right outside the building, there was 
a coal pile that belonged to one faction and a coal pile uh, that belonged to the other faction. Of course, the community knew what was going on. And one wag took a piece of coal and wrote on the, the white front door, one faith, one baptism, one hope, two coal piles. And the devil laughed and laughed. The opposite is true. Unity and love promote the work of the Spirit in the minds and hearts of those who observe us. There are two churches not many miles apart in Wyoming County in which two brothers in Christ had a disagreement that became a conflict. One was a contractor and the other was a homeowner. And the contractor went to work for the homeowner and there was an issue. Instead of going to a pagan court system, the two men agreed to ask their pastors and a couple of believers they trusted from the respective churches to come together for a council to hear each side and then to hand down an opinion. They committed themselves to abiding by the decision, and they did, and the angels of heaven rejoiced. In times of transition, unity is expressed in prayer, support, encouragement, graciousness, patience, And I want to challenge you in the coming months and even years, particularly the next year or two. May I do that? I want to challenge you to hold one another accountable in this. Let it never be said among yourselves. Let it never be said to a new pastor. Brother Larry never did it that way. Well, Pastor Larry always... Hold one another accountable on that. I, had a, I have a friend who, with the Lord now, he pastored a church for almost 40 years. And it was, it was not a King James only church, but it was an only King James church. And uh, he had preached from a King James. And on the last Sunday he was there, I think he was retiring after 38 years, he stood up and he read from the NIV. Now, folks, we're talking about nearly 40 years. He read from the NIV, you know, and everybody over 60, their jaws went gong, you know. Probably some of the young people said, what? And uh, after he had read the text, he said this. He said, I've read from the New International Version this morning, so you can never say, Pastor John only used the King James Bible. (laughs) I don't know how many appreciated that, but I loved it. I loved it. Okay, would you please remember that? Please check one another. John Wesley and George Whitfield were both mightily used of God in bringing multitudes to Christ. And historians say, in preparing the colonies for the Revolutionary War. Mr. Wesley and Mr. Whitfield disagreed staunchly on important doctrine, especially divine election and the security of the believer. Wesley was a proponent of Arminianism, which emphasizes man's part in salvation and denied the security of the believer. 
Whitfield stood as firmly on the other side of the theological spectrum. He preached salvation by grace alone and eternal security. Their sometimes contentious discussions made it into the local newspapers. Someone trying to fuel the fire asked Mr. Whitfield, Do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? No, I don't, Whitfield said. John Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far back that I will not see him. Jesus prayed that we walk in unity. Father, that they might be one. In 24, he prayed for our destiny. This is so cool. Let me just touch on it. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, may be with me where I am. It isn't difficult to grasp we wanting to be with him. But think about it. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to behold his glory. And Paul said in Ephesians, you have a very specific part in this. After those two great verses in chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself, gift of God. Verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship. Literally, it is God's poema. We are God's grace poem. And forever, folks, he will put us on display as trophies of his grace. One question for you. I'm drop this into your thinking. Did the Father always answer Jesus' prayers? Jesus said back in verse 11, Father, you have kept them. And I'm asking you that they may be with me where I am. Is that a prayer that the Father will answer? You think the Father will ever say, but son, you don't know what a sinner Larry is. Grace is grace, or it is not grace at all. He prayed for our unity, prayed for our mutual love. Let me touch on this, verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them. First century enemies of Christ said in the book of Acts, this sect turned the world upside down. In a few centuries, the Christian faith grew from a backroom sect to the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. Pagan historians, not Christians, account for the phenomenal growth of the church. One named Aristides described Christians to Emperor Hadrian, who ruled in Rome, 117 to 138. Look at what he said. Sir, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. And if they see a stranger, they take him home as though he were a real brother. They love each other, sir. Lucian, another pagan, 2nd century, 120 to 200. 
It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, put it into their hearts that they are brethren. I began with a reference to war. Let me close with a reference to war, a different war. R.G. Lee was a famous preacher of yesteryear. He pastored one church in Memphis for over 40 years. Some say that Dr. Lee was the last of the great orators. It was announced at our Bible college, Mary and I attended, and in our church that Dr. Lee was coming to preach his great sermon, preached more than a thousand times, payday someday. You know, I was just a good old boy from Wyoming County. We were really excited. Dr. Lee was 88 years old. I showed up, 4,000-seat auditorium. I saw Dr. R.G. Lee sitting up, sitting up there. So you know what I did? I didn't know any better. I just went right down the middle. I came up on the platform, and I said, Dr. Lee, I'm a student here. Would you sign my Bible? <laughs> Guess what? He signed my Bible, and I treasure that. Dr. Lee told this story. I love this. He says, when I I was a little boy staying in my grandmother's house, I was kind of lounging around the porch one day, and my grandma was in the rocker. And I said, Granny, what's the happiest day of your life? I expected her to say, when we bought the farm or when you were born. But she didn't say any of that. Well, R.G., she said, when I was a little girl about your age, we got the word that my daddy had been killed in the Civil War. And my mama tried to be strong, but you could hear her weeping at night in the bedroom, and we wept too. There was one summer afternoon, mama was sitting in the rocker on the front porch, breaking beans on her lap, and I was lying on the porch, and my feet propped up on the rail, and all of a sudden, I heard Mama say, Child, I think that's your daddy walking down the lane. Mama, I said, You know daddy's gone. He's not coming back. You shouldn't talk like that. But she stood up. She started running down the steps. And she said, Child, that is your daddy. He's alive. I looked down the lane through the haze, she said, and there was a silhouette I recognized. It was my father. We had been given a wrong report. And I started running down that lane with my arms wide open. And when I jumped into my daddy's arms, R.G., that's the happiest moment of my life. When you know Jesus, when you really know him, when there is evidence in your life that you know him, The happiest moment of your life hasn't happened yet. That day, if Jesus does not return, we pray he will soon. When you close your eyes in this world and you open them in the next, and when Jesus embraces you and leads you to a reunion with your loved ones and your dearest friends, And he welcomes you into that forever place. That will be the happiest moment of your life.
That's what Jesus prayed for. In the meantime, there's a mission. There's a commission. And Jesus states that in verse 18 of his prayer. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. May we be about the Father's business. May we be about real spiritual unity. And let's embrace the challenge from our Lord's prayer this morning to display unity and love now as we look forward to the fulfillment of our eternal destiny. It's a great prayer, isn't it? It's a great challenge. And it's a great invitation. To know that you are not into religion, as it were, but that you have a personal, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received him? Has there been a day when you have personally received him? You have invited him into your life as Savior and Lord. If you have, then you're the heir of all these things. And if you haven't, will you this morning?